Amen. Thank you, Jim. At this time, our young friends can be dismissed to junior church. That's grades one through six. And if you have a young person with you, grades one through six, and you want to know what goes on in junior church, you are always welcome to accompany them and observe. When we were dating in high school, Shannon, who's now my wife at the time, was my girlfriend, she dumped me. She looked at all this and walked away. Can you imagine? <laughs> but she was right to do so. She was right to do so, at least at the time. You see, Shannon, from the age of two on, was raised in church. She came to know Christ as Savior when she was seven years old in junior church. And uh, with Mr. Haney being the, the gentleman who was preaching that day, she reminds me of that often. And praise God, my wife is now in junior church, uh, leading the music in there. But I, I was not a believer when we met. I was not a believer. I was an atheist. And I wasn't just an atheist. I was a hardened atheist. I was a gay rights activist. I was not interested in anything about God. And uh, frankly, I didn't want anything to do with God. I didn't even like people that said they were Christians. But then I accidentally took Shannon out on a date. I accidentally took her out on a date. I wanted to date her friend Annie. Annie wanted nothing to do with me. And the only way I could get her to say yes to going out and doing anything with me was as if we took her friend Shannon along with her. And we'd go out for Shannon's birthday to lunch over here at Frankie's, the Italian restaurant near the mall. And wouldn't you know, at last minute, Annie backs out. But it was this other girl's birthday. And I mean, I was the kind of guy that was not going to cancel on this girl who thought she was being taken out for her birthday. So I ended up picking her up, and um, she said, where's Annie as we're driving? And she's, I'm like, oh, she's not coming. And she's like, she's not coming, because she wasn't allowed at 15 years old to be out dating. And I, I didn't think anything of it, because that wasn't a rule with me. And honestly, I didn't think of it as a date. We just went out, and we went to Frankie's, and we had lunch together, and wouldn't you know it, that was our first date. That was our first date. But things didn't go so well eventually. We, we started dating on and off. She invited me to church. I came. I heard the good news of Jesus Christ multiple times, clearly went to youth group activities, heard about what it meant to be a believer, and I rejected it. I didn't want anything to do with it. I wasn't interested in that at all. She would, she would cry over the fact that I was unsaved because she liked me so much, and I kept telling her, don't worry about it, everything's fine, don't worry about it, everything's fine. And then she started to get serious about her walk with God. Joe and Keely Shag were the youth leaders at the time, and they really prayed and poured themselves into her, and she realized, as she told me later, that her and I were headed in different directions. And so, at the end of, uh, actually, this is, this is a pretty terrible timing, at after prom of my freshman year, we decided to break up. I, well, I, I say we decided to break up, but she dumped me. <laughs> I really didn't have much choice in the matter, but it made me feel better about all of it. She dumped me, uh, and you know what happened is right after she chose the Lord over me, because that was the position she was in, she had unwisely given her heart away to somebody that was headed in a different direction. And she chose the Lord over me, and wouldn't you know it, shortly after that, God's Spirit showed me that I was a sinner in need of salvation. And I remember it wasn't long after all of this fell apart that I knelt down at the side of my bed as an 18-year-old young man, 
and prayed and asked Jesus Christ to forgive my sins and to be my Savior. And we weren't together over that summer, and, and during the fall, we met up again, and I told her that I had gotten saved. And she said, I don't believe you. <laughs> and she's like, you just want to get back together. And I, and I said, no, I, I really got saved. And, and she's like, well, I'll be watching. <laughs> and so she put me on probation for about six months until she realized that something had changed in my life, and we got back together, this time on a right foundation, where we were headed in the right direction. We celebrate Valentine's Day this week. Gentlemen, if you haven't noticed, uh, it's upon us. And so you may need to do something about that. You probably heard about the flowers and the candies and, and the jewelry and the cards and chocolate and uh, romances in the air and all of those things. And we also today conclude our sermon series on the heart of the matter. And so I considered talking about marriage, as I usually do on Valentine's Day, and there's always things we can do to have a more Christ-like marriage. But then the Spirit of God told me there's, a, there's plenty of people that are going to hear the Word of God today that aren't married, and that I needed to say something to them. God's Word has much to say to them. And today we're talking about giving your heart away, or how to ruin your life in one easy step. <laughs> because as they say, it's better to want the wife you don't have than to have the wife you don't want. What does God say about those that we connect our lives with? Not just on a surface level, but on the deepest of levels, whether that's in friendship, whether that's in business, whether that's in romance. What God's word has to say about it could be uncomfortable, but it most certainly isn't unclear. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, if you would, please. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll begin reading together in verse number 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 14. The word of God says this. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them, and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that in this time your word would accomplish what it's sent forth to do. Not what I send it forth to do, Father, but what you would send it forth to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Here the Apostle Paul, a missionary church planter, one who used to be against the things of God and against the things of Christ, to the point where he was seeing Christians arrested, thrown into jail, and executed. He had an amazing encounter with the risen Christ. His life was, was transformed. And he would now go, even though he was being chased by those he formerly worked with, he would go from city to city preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. People would become believers in Jesus Christ. They would get baptized. He'd help organize them into churches. And then he'd move on to a different area. And he did this a number of times. And one of the places that he went was the city of Corinth. And he would write letters, not just letters, but letters back to the churches that were there to deal with problems. And we have the inspired word of God here as he was writing this letter to the church in Corinth. It's the second of the letters that we have captured. We know that there was probably more correspondence here. And the church in Corinth had some real problems. The church in Corinth had some real problems. 
they, they had some real moral problems. And so in verse number 14, he's dealing with something that he became aware of because of what was being told him by those that wrote to him. He says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Who's he talking to? Who's the ye? It was the believers inside of the church in Corinth. So he's talking to Christians here. He's talking to those that know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And he says, be ye not. This is a command. This isn't a suggestion. This is a command. And he says, unequally yoked together. Now, if you've ever been down in Amish country, how many of you from time to time find yourselves in Amish country for one reason or another, right? You find yourself down there, and perhaps you've actually seen plow horses. How many of you have seen plow horses, right? Have you ever seen more than one horse pulling a plow at a time? How many of you have seen? Well, there's a device that connects them, and it's that yoke, and it yokes them together. It connects them. They are both attached to a piece usually of wood, and it goes around their neck, and it's tied to harnesses, and the harnesses are tied to a plow, and they're both pulling together in the same direction. If they're not pulling together in the same direction, it causes all sorts of trouble, and the plow does not move together. This was the picture that Paul was bringing to the mind of the hearers, saying it would be like taking one animal that wanted to go this way and another animal that wanted to go this way and to put them underneath the same yoke and expect that they're going to move together in the right direction. He says that's what it means to be mismatched, to be wrongly partnered together, to be unequally yoked. And specifically, he says, with unbelievers. So what he's saying here is believers do not connect yourself where you're tying your direction of your life together, your future together, with somebody who is not headed in the same direction, with an unbeliever. You say, does God not like unbelievers? That's the craziest thing in the world because God sent his son to die for unbelievers. God so desired unbelievers to come to know him as their savior, to have a way back to God, that even though we as sinners who have sinned against God, broke God's laws, we're the ones who shook our fist in his face and said, you're not going to be the boss of me, even though we're the ones who rebelled against God, God paid the price so that we could be made right with him. And a price was paid that we could never pay back. A price was paid that puts us in incalculable debt to the Lord. Because it wasn't just a wave of the hand and it was gone. No, sin had to be punished. And it was punished when Jesus Christ stepped in and took our punishment. For you and I, we could never pay it off. It would be death and hell, suffering for all eternity. But the Lord Jesus Christ, God's son, who was sinless and had no sins to pay for himself, he was given, but also willingly went to the cross to become sin for you and me and when he died, he truly died, he was buried, and then he rose again from the dead. That is the price that God himself paid so that unbelievers could have a way back to him. The Lord loves unbelievers. And this church, we love unbelievers because all of us started there. No one is born as a little baby as a Christian. No matter how many times they might be uh, baptized or they might be christened, Someone does not come to faith in Jesus Christ until they personally understand and ask the Lord to forgive their sins and be their savior. So God loves unbelievers. What he's talking about here is not about being upset with unbelievers as though there's some kind of dirty thing. But here's the problem. Believers and unbelievers have a different foundation for life. They have a completely different foundation for life. The Christian life is not a slightly different life. It's a completely different life. You are now living for something else than you were living for before. 
Now, the desire of my heart is to please God in all things. Before, it was to please me in all things that I could get away with reasonably. That is a very different way to live. That is a very different way to live. You see, we have different values as to what's right and wrong and what's true and false and what ought to be done and what ought not to be done. I'm going to be discreet about this, but let's be honest. Gentlemen, if you can remember what it was like when you were dating before you came to know Christ, or perhaps you're not a church person, you don't know Christ, there are certain things you want from a relationship that God says you don't get until you're married. But we don't care, we push the line anyway. We're headed in the wrong directions. We want to please ourselves. We want to do what's, what's best for me. And the, the dangerous thing that happens here is whether it's romantic or in business partnership or even in close friendships, this is a disaster waiting to happen. Our deepest relationships irrevocably tie us together as though we were put into a yoke with some other beast of burden, some other person, and asked to push in the same direction when we're not headed in the same direction. And there's something on a deep fundamental level that separates us. It continues on because he wanted to drive this point home. And he makes several comparisons. The second half of verse 14 says, For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What agreement can somebody that wants to do what pleases God have to do with somebody that cares nothing about pleasing God? Being righteous is someone who sees what, God's re what God requires and they desire to walk after that thing. Not because that's what makes us saved, not because that's what gets us to heaven, but after we've trusted in Christ, he changes us, his spirit comes to live in us, and now we want to do the right thing. We don't always do it, but we want to do the right thing. And so it pulls us in that direction to do the right thing. And then there is lawlessness, unrighteousness, where we do the right things as long as it's expedient for us, as long as we don't get caught, as long as it doesn't cost us more than we want to pay, and there, there's an intrinsic selfishness there. I did not care one bit about pleasing God before I became a believer in God. And when I was a young believer in God, I only cared about pleasing God a little bit. But as I grew, it became more and more of what was important to me. Before I was saved, I wanted what I wanted out of a relationship. If it didn't serve me, I wasn't interested in it. Except for what I might be able to turn it into. And he says, what agreement can those two opposites have with one another? He says, and what communion hath light with darkness? Light and dark are opposites, aren't they? They're complete opposites. Can you have a partially dark room? No, because the light is going to bounce, it's going to bounce around the room and it's just going to be dim, right? You can't have both of those two things existing. And he says, what's the unity there? How can you have unity between light and dark? Those that have been born again of the Father of lights and those that unfortunately have still been blinded to him, to the glorious gospel that wants to change their lives, but yet they have yet to believe on him. And so now they're still in darkness. There's a great work that happens when a person comes to know Christ as Savior. They are translated, they are moved from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And so what union can these two have together, he asks. In verse number 15, and what concord hath Christ with Belial. Belial is another term for the devil. What concord, what agreement, what treaty could Christ, the Son of God, the perfect, holy, sinless Son of God, sign with the devil? 
And who is the devil? Well, the devil was once the most beautiful of angels that decided that he was going to become like the Most High, that he was going to ascend to God's throne, and he led a rebellion. And he and those that followed him, a third of the angels, they were cast down. And that is where the devil comes from, and that is where demons come from. And they want something very different. The devil hates everything that God loves, because the devil hates God. The devil wants to cause as much trouble as possible. You say, you believe in the devil? You, you, you're crazy. You believe in the devil? Yeah, I thought it was crazy too, until I realized that he wanted it to look crazy. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist, and so he could operate from the shadows and in secrecy. And so here, how, what, what can they agree on? What can the devil and Christ agree on? And the answer to that is nothing. Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? Meaning that how can they have, think for a second, if you had controlling shares or nearly controlling shares in stock in a company, and you got to make decisions for that company, how could you ever agree as somebody who's a believer with somebody who's not a believer when you want different things? When foundationally there is a different principle for your life? How could you come together on something like that and lead a company in that direction? He says, and what agreement, verse number 16, hath the temple of God with idols? You see, the temple of God was a place where the Lord was worshipped. And he was worshipped in the beauty of holiness. And holiness is being separated from sin. What's an idol? Well, historically speaking, an idol would have been like a statue. It would have been made out of wood or gold or silver or stone. And people would have said, this is the God of whatever they needed it to be at that time. This is the God of, of harvest, and so we're going to bow to it. This is the God of victory in battle. This is the God of, of water, who's going to bring us water in a drought. And they would offer sacrifices to it. And sometimes those were even human sacrifices. Sometimes those were even their own infant children that they offered to idols. The God of Molech, they would oftentimes make in these groves where they would worship him. They would make statues with hands outstretched of metal, and they would heat the hands until they were glowing red, and they would place their infant upon it to be burned up so that they might find favor with the God of Molech. Or they would engage in the most horribly immoral activities to earn favor with the goddess Ishtar. And they would do these things, and he asked the question, what, what agreement can those gods have with the true and living God? When God says, thou shalt not make unto thee any, any graven image, he says, you're not going to make anything and worship it. You see, God was not something that we could understand here on earth. He doesn't look like a cow. He doesn't look like a monkey. He doesn't look like uh, a many-armed elephant. He doesn't look like anything that is on this earth. He is a spirit, and he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And he was concerned that the children of Israel would turn to the gods that were around them or they'd make some substitute for God. And they would worship that thing, the created thing, instead of the creator. And so there can't be any combination between those two things, the house of God and idols. The passage continues on and it says, For ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Here is where it really comes down to it. If you know Christ as Savior, God, by his Spirit, lives inside of you. Did you know that? And you are the temple 
of the living God. Not a temple made with hands, but he lives inside of the heart, the immaterial part of every believer. Man, woman, boy, girl, if they come to know Christ, the Spirit of God lives inside of them. Would you look in 1 Corinthians for me? Let's just turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter 3 and verse number 16. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? You see, this is very different from how things usually worked in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God would appear and his, his presence would appear in the holiest of holies inside of either the tabernacle or the temple. But God, by his spirit, would only come on people every once in a while in the Old Testament when, it was called, when they were called upon to do some sort of great work, either to prophesy and to, to speak words directly from God or to do some great action or mighty work in the name of God to win a battle. And then he would go again, and you could sin so grievously that the Spirit would leave. But in the New Testament times, the relationship that we have with God is so abundantly above what they had in the Old Testament that the Spirit of God comes into every believer from the moment that they believe, lives inside of them, and never leaves. So, wherever you go, you take Jesus with you. Wherever you go, you take Jesus with you. How would that change if we could see him with us? How would that change our lives if we could see him with us? I remember having this posed to me, and somebody asked me, it was probably my pastor uh, when I was in college, because I kept saying, I have a hard time going to these parties where my friends are the ones that are drinking, and I'm the only one that's sober, and it's, it's boring. And he would ask me a question. He said, how, how would you feel if Jesus showed up to that party and you were there? I'm like, I would sneak out. <laughs> I wouldn't want him to know I was there. What about, what about when you watch things on television or at the movies and Jesus was sitting right there next to you when you watched it? He's sitting there on the sofa and you turn it on. He says, well, what are we watching tonight? How would you feel about that? Or when I was thinking about going to the, the club with my friends or I was, I was going to involve myself with, with some girl that was there for that brief period of time when my wife and I weren't together, what, what would it be like if I brought Jesus on the date with us? More importantly, if I brought Jesus with me after the date. You see, he is with us whether we see him or not. And we take him everywhere we go. And because of that, we are not just having a battle of ideas, we're actually bringing the very presence, the spirit, the person of God into those situations. And if we sin, we drag him through that sin with us. And if we rebel, we drag him through that rebellion with us. And if we decide to not listen to what we know is right in order to satisfy the flesh, we satisfy the flesh with him sitting there and watching on. And that's what the Word of God is reminding us here. This isn't just, I belong to this group and you belong to that group. This isn't just star-crossed lovers where you have Romeo and Juliet belonging to warring houses. This is, on a fundamental level, we are in, headed in completely different directions. We are headed in completely different directions. And he says, you are the temple of the living God. The Spirit of God dwells inside of every believer. It says in verse number 16, 
For ye are the temple of the living God, and God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He says, I desire not just to sit around like a spectator in your life. I desire to be as closely intertwined with you as possible. I will be in you. I will be with you. I will make decisions with you. I will go along with you, and I want to be with you. I want to be your God. What an amazing thing that though we have done the things wrong that we've done, that God still wants us. Every day, even though I try and live right, I still sin. Sometimes it's only in thought, sometimes it's in words, sometimes it's in action, and I hate that I do it, but I still do it, and yet God hasn't gotten rid of me. And though he's perfect and he knows that I'm not, he's still willing to be here through all of this mess. What an amazing God. And he says, I want you to be mine because I'm going to be yours. One of the reasons that people tie themselves to somebody else, whether it's in friendship, whether it's in business, whether it's in romance, is because they feel like I'm missing something and they have it. I'm missing something and they have it. They think I'm lonely and I need someone to be with me. They're thinking I'm not happy, but I'm happy when I'm with that person. There's always a smile on me. I feel appreciated when they're around. They actually value me for who I am. They're willing to accept me and overlook all of my faults and my failures. They're, they're willing to be with me in the highs and the lows. And we think that that is only found in perhaps a best friend or in a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a fiance or in a spouse. But the truth of the matter is no person is big enough to fill that hole in your life. The reason that you feel lonely and the reason that you feel unfulfilled and the reason you don't feel accepted and the reason you don't feel valued and the reason that you feel like nothing is ever good enough and no one is willing to, to hear me, I need someone who's willing to hear me, is because that can only be found in God alone. You were hardwired as a human being created by God to live in fellowship with God and that's why nothing else satisfies. You ever notice that? We get fixated on something. When I get that thing, when I achieve that goal, when I go on this trip, when I've conquered this, I'm going to feel great. That's what I need. You ever notice on the other side of it, you're like, eh, now I need something more. You've probably fixated on something before. Maybe it was a motorcycle. Maybe it was a television. Maybe it was a job change. Maybe it was a certain financial goal that you had. Maybe it was home ownership. Maybe it was um, some achievement in winning somebody's love or affection. And then you get it. And then you want more. That shiny new phone that you got that you were so excited about, you couldn't stop reading about it online, you finally got it, and now you're like, yeah, it didn't change my life. It's just a thing. You got that car finally. Now everyone's going to respect you because you've got that nice car. No one cares what you drive. You think they're thinking about you? All of us are too self-absorbed to even notice. They're like, oh, you're here? Let alone how you got here. It doesn't last because we were meant for so much more than this world. We were meant to live in communion with God, the eternal, forever. And anything we put into that place is so shallow and unfulfilling that we're always seeking after the next thing. And this... This is what happens. We look to people to give us what only God can provide for us. We look horizontally to relationships with one another 
to what God... Can I tell you, if you're not happy, if you're not a happy person, if you're not a joyful person, marrying somebody's not going to make you joyful. If, if you don't feel valued, marrying somebody's not going to make you feel valued. These are things that we will take with us into all of our relationships. Now you're just going to be a married person who is dissatisfied rather than a single person who is dissatisfied until we find our rest and satisfaction in Christ alone. Verse number 17. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. This is throwing us back to an Old Testament passage where he's saying, come out from among them. In other words, I want you to leave the room. I don't want you to be there anymore. This is a very distinct thing. This is like being inside to going outside. This is not like, I want you to take a step in the right direction. Or maybe take a couple steps in the right direction. No, God is telling us to leave this completely to become this. Not to straddle any fence, not to have one foot in and one foot out. God is saying you need to completely separate from that. Again, why? Because God hates unbelievers? No. But as his child, he loves you. And he can see where it's headed. Remember the children of Israel in the Old Testament were given very specific rules about who they could marry and who they couldn't marry? They were given very specific. They said, don't marry or give your family in marriage to the people around you that don't believe in me. And you say, well, that's really closed-minded. From our viewpoint today in our pluralistic society, there are many people who believe many things, and so we have to respect all of them and, and believe that there's, there's value in all religious traditions. But if the word of God is true, and it is, the true and living God is the only real God. And every other God, little g, is a poor substitute that either man has made up or it's a trick from the enemy to draw people astray. And what he was worried about was, if you marry them, you don't just bring them into your family, you bring their gods with them. You bring your gods. You say, well, no, I'll be smart enough not to make that mistake. I'll be wise enough not to allow my heart to be taken away from me. Did you know the wisest natural man that ever lived was destroyed by marrying people that he ought not to have married? Seven hundred of them. Three hundred concubines unofficial wives that were Pharaoh's daughter and, and this princess and that princess and they brought their gods and Solomon started out great only with his heart towards the true and living God. The Jehovah of the Old Testament, the Jesus of the New Testament, that true and living God, his heart was there. But you know what happened? He was warned, don't do it, they'll pull your heart away from me. Don't marry them, it'll pull your heart away from me. And sure enough, the wisest natural man that ever lived was ruined because his heart was pulled away from him. So if the wisest natural man, the most educated man who probably has ever lived, at least during his day, if he couldn't see the trap for what it was, then you and I ought to take note and be very careful as well. He says, you've got to leave the room. No, no partial, no partial obedience in this. Be separate. That be separate doesn't mean you stand here and you stand over here. It means I've called you to something higher. I've appointed you. I've given you a direction that you're supposed to head, and you don't need to be entangled in something that's going to keep you from becoming all that I've saved you to be. You don't need to have something that keeps you from being all that I've saved you to become. He says, touch not the unclean thing. Ouch! When I was, when I was unsaved, 
and was sort of dating, sort of not dating my wife, who was just my girlfriend at the time, if someone had called me the unclean thing, I don't think I would have liked it. Now, I was a teenage boy, so it was probably an accurate description of me. You know, there's just, guys, I want you to know, no amount of cologne can replace a good shower. That one's for free. You know what I'm talking about. That Axe body spray. It doesn't cover it up. It just flavors it. No, the unclean to the mind of the Hebrew would have meant something that is ceremonially unpure, something that can't be brought before God. If you were unclean, you needed to be made clean before you could come into the presence of God and to do the things that you needed to to worship. There were many things that could make a person ceremonially unclean. We don't need to go into all of them. But once it happened, you were not fit. You were not fit to come before the Lord until things had been cared for. And so... When he says, touch not the unclean thing, see, we just see the word touch there, but it's a strong touch. It's like you're connecting yourself fully and forcefully to that thing. Fully and forcefully to that thing. He says, touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. He says, I will welcome you. I will bring you close to myself, close to my side. Verse 18, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. You know what he says? Don't look to all of those other relationships to satisfy you because everything that you need, you already have in me. The satisfying relationship of the human life is with God. And only once we have that settled can we enjoy the other relationships in life to their fullest. You see, when God is in his rightful place, everything else is in its rightful place. But when the Lord is not in his rightful place, nothing else can be in its rightful place. It's either this piece is there or it all falls apart. This piece is there or else it all falls apart. And he's saying, you have everything you need in the closeness of the relationship that I desire to have with you. We may see, think that this person makes me feel special and eases my burdens and keeps me company, appreciates me, protects me, provides for me. All of those things are what the Lord does for you. All of those things are what the Lord does for you. And if you feel like God is not going to do that for me, or God isn't enough, I need this thing, is probably because you haven't been to visit him lately. You haven't gotten a fresh view of who he is. You haven't, through his word, through prayer, through really worshiping him in your heart, you probably haven't spent much time there, and so you feel like you need to go somewhere else. But when you have a clear vision of who God is because you've spent time with him, because you're, you're filling your mind with things that bring you closer to him, you're walking as God leads you. That means walking in the Spirit, the Bible says, letting the Spirit call the shots. When you do that, you will see the Lord so high, so holy, so lifted up. You'll see his love for you. You'll see his wisdom being poured out on a daily basis as he charts your path so that you will end up in the very best place. Not every stop along the way will be pleasant, but the end most certainly will be. You'll see all of these things and you'll realize all that I want, I have in him. All that I want, I have in him, and not in these other relationships. What can we take away from this? First of all, I believe we're challenged to find all that we're missing in God. To find all that we're missing. As we just said, many people are looking to relationships horizontally, situation changes, circumstances changing, and we think that that's going to solve our problems. 
that's going to solve our problems. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, Pastor Steve, but have you ever been in marriage counseling and there's problems in a home and the people decide, you know what we need? We need a fresh start. We're going to move. Run from your problem. What happens when you move and you don't address your problems? It follows you. Isn't that obnoxious? Isn't that obnoxious? It follows you. You can't run. I saw it in a, in a dear friend of mine who had problems and, and he wanted to move and I counseled him and I said, unless you address these, these problems, because things are not good, all that's going to happen is you're going to get a divorce in that state instead of in this state. Sadly enough, he was just hoping to hold it all together and thought that he could, he could appease the situation and give his wife what she wanted, and it, it didn't work out. He ended up getting divorced somewhere else instead of here. The problems just followed him. You see, we can't run from these things. Your loneliness is real. Your need to be valued is real. Your lack of encouragement that you feel. The fact that you feel like you need acceptance and you need someone to protect you, all of those are real. The problem is where we look for the answers. Believer, you're only going to find that in God. You're only going to find that in God. The sad thing for me is that it took me a long time to figure that out. It takes some of us a long time to figure that out. Once we've gathered all the stuff and checked all the boxes and crossed everything off our bucket list and got all the, the degrees and the job and the family and all the things that we think are going to satisfy, we realize what we want has been right here the whole time. And the Lord's just been waiting. He's been waiting. He's like, have you figured it out yet? There's a story in the Bible that we refer to as the story of the prodigal son, but it's really the story of the father. You see, there was a father that had two sons, and one of them was not happy being under the father's rules, and he didn't want to obey, and he just wanted his inheritance, couldn't wait for his dad to die, so he asked for it early, and he took that money, and, his, and he went off and left the father and his brother who stayed home, and he left, and he went off into the far country, and he spent it on partying and women. Ruined his reputation, got as low as a person could, spent up all that money partying as much, and he thought it would make him happy. He really did. He was miserable, he thought, underneath the father's rules. He was miserable under the... He was so demanding. And he thought, I know what's going to make me happy. I'm going over there, and I'm going I'm to run this rail as far as it will go. And so he did. And he ran out of money. And a famine came in that country. By the way, something always goes wrong. Something always goes wrong. And he found himself, instead of partying with coins in his pocket and pleasurable company all around him and friends slapping him on the back, he found himself in the mud and muck of a pigsty feeding the pigs husks. And he was so hungry and so broke, his destitution drove him to the place where he wanted to eat the pig food. He was willing to do that. And you know what? He had to run that far, apparently, until he came to himself. And then while he was sitting there in that muck, he woke up and he said, what, what am I doing here? Even the servants, I was a son, but the servants have it so good back in my father's house. I'm going to go back and I'm going to ask my father, I know he would never forgive me. He'll never forgive me for what I've done, but maybe he'll let me be a servant. Because even the servants have it better off back home. And he starts walking home and he's planned out this whole speech that he's going to use to try and let his father work, uh, let his father hire him as a servant. And he gets within eyesight of the house. And the father has been looking all of these months, maybe even years, for the prodigal to come. 
And when he sees him, you know what he does? We think we know what he does. We think he does this. Sits there on the porch, arms crossed, glowering, looking at the filth all over his son as he comes back, and saying, about time, about time, told you so. Look at you're a mess. Look what you did without me. You're ruined. No. Before the son could finish his speech, his father had run to him. The father ran to him. No, the children should run to the father in that culture, but the father breaks all cultural norms, runs to his child, and even though he's filthy and fragrant, he throws his arms around him, and he embraces him, and he kisses him. And he says, let's put a clean set of clothes on you and new shoes on your feet and give him back the ring that shows that he's a member of the family. My son, who once was dead, is now alive. He was lost, but now he's found. He says, welcome back. That's God. Amen. Believer, that's the Lord. He's not sitting there on the porch waiting to berate you when you get back. He's sitting there waiting for you to run to him. He's been there the whole time with everything you need to find satisfaction in this life. We need to find the things that we're missing in the Lord and in the Lord alone. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ as Savior, I want you to know the Father is waiting with open arms. Not to berate you, not some angry man in the sky who's waiting for you to mess up so he can zap you with a lightning bolt. No, remember what he did for you on the cross. Remember how great lengths he went so that you could be with him. He wants you. All of your failures and all of the things that you've hidden that you don't think anybody knows, he knows. All of the things you've only thought and the depraved part of your heart, God is aware of, and yet he says, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says, come unto me, and I will in no wise cast you out. He says here, I will receive you. I will welcome you. Come to the Father today through the Son. That's the only way to get to the Father. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. But we can come to the Father. Before Jesus Christ, there was no way to the Father, only a promise that a way would be made. And then Jesus Christ came and made that way, shedding his own blood. And if you believe that Christ died for your sins and rose from the grave, that's all it takes to call on him and to become a believer. I didn't understand everything in the Bible when I became a believer. I didn't even agree with what little I knew was in the Bible, but I did agree with one thing, and I did know one thing, that Jesus Christ, God's Son, died for my sin and rose from the grave. And if I called on him, he has promised to save me. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. God promises in his word. Be saved today. Get into that relationship that you are saved to have, believer. Second of all, we need to develop relationships with believers. We need to develop relationships with believers. And we have to consciously make that choice to invest in those relationships. Your deepest relationships need to be with people that are following in the same direction. You're following after God, they're following after God, and they're encouraging you forward. Not pulling you back, not creating stumbling blocks for you, but the ones that are ushering you forward. Can I say it's not easy to follow Christ? It's not easy to follow Christ. And you have people in your life that would say, why are you spending so much effort? Come on, I saved you a seat at the bar. Come on. I know you're, you're heavy about things. Just take a couple of drinks and take the edge off. Come on, no big deal. Right? Don't worry about that. 
Don't live that way. Why are you spending your money like that? Why are you spending your time like that? What? There's, there's, a much e there's all sorts of people that will give us terrible advice. And see, here's the thing. They probably genuinely care about us. I have friends that I would say that I love and I believe love me and they are not believers in Jesus Christ. And I enjoy the time that I spend with them. But I want you to know there will always be some distance between me and them because we don't have the same God. We don't have the same motivations. We don't have the same dreams. We don't have the same foundations. And though I love them and they love me, I have to intentionally keep them at a certain distance from me. And I hate that because I love to pour out my heart to them and to have them give me that counsel. But I know that we're headed in different directions. I know that we're headed in different directions. So this doesn't mean that you can't have friends that are believers, or that are, excuse me, that are unbelievers. But you and I, we need close friends. And we need them to provoke us to good works, meaning that they help us to be better, not to be worse. Some of you have no close friends. Some of you have no close friends. You've got to fix that. You've got to fix that. I don't know when you became a believer in Jesus, but I did when I was in college, and I had no saved friends. None. The only person that was around my age that I knew that was a dedicated believer was my girlfriend, and she lived 500 miles away in Tennessee, where she was going to school. That's sort of hard to hang out with them. And you know what ends up happening? You get calls, hey, we're going over to so-and-so's house. There's a party this Friday night. You want to come? No, nah, I'm not going to go. Hey, we're going out to see this movie. Hey, we're going here. We're going there. We're doing this. We're going with them. There's somebody I want you to meet. She's beautiful. You're going to enjoy it. And then eventually I'm like, nah, I don't think I'm going to. You know what happens? They stop calling. They stop calling. I remember the, the senior year, my fourth year at Ohio State was a very lonely year because I had put out there that I was a believer and that I didn't want to do that stuff anymore. God had changed my wants and desires. And you know what I needed desperately? Was Christian friends. I desperately needed Christian friends. And God, by his grace, brought some to me. We need to cultivate that. Where, where do you find, this is crazy to ask this question because we're all sitting in church this morning, where are you going to find friends that are going to help you forward in your walk with, with God? Where are you going to find them? Church. Where inside of church? Shameless plug, where are you going to find them? Sunday school. You say, Sunday school is for little kids and coloring pages and, and those felt board cutouts. Pastor Steve, you need to use more of those felt board cutouts. It would, it would, no, Pastor Steve is one of our best teachers. Probably, I don't know anybody better than him. But that's not what Sunday school is about. Sunday school is about making connections with people. I get to talk at you, and hopefully the Spirit of God speaks to you as well during this time, but you don't get to ask questions and talk back. People would probably look at you a little bit odd if you're like, I have a question about that in here. But in Sunday school, you can do that. You can ask a question. You don't even have to be a believer in Jesus to come to Sunday school. You could just come, and you can listen, and you can learn, and you can ask questions. Friend, I showed up here as a skeptic who was ready to say that nothing in the Bible is true, and all of it's fake and made up, and I'm only here because she invited me, right? Pastor, you remember all that. And then, do you remember when I first went to the Sunday school class? We were all the way down in, in what was now Marvin's room, was Alice's room. We were all the way down there. Do you remember that? I didn't want to come because I thought if I came one time, I'd have to come back every week. So I kept trying to put off coming to Sunday school as long as I possibly could. And wouldn't you know it, once I came once, I started coming back every week. 
And Pastor taught the college and career age class at that time. And um, that's where I really learned the basics of things and made friends with the other people that were here at church. It is one of the greatest things that you can get. There is a lesson being taught, and you will be encouraged by it, and you'll share prayer requests, but the connections that you make inside of those classes are really where you're going to find Christian friends in this church. And so if you say, I don't want to go back to that church, nobody talks to me. Nobody's my friend there. Well, you've got to show yourself friendly, and you've got to go where the people are to make friends with them. Sunday school. We have to develop those relationships. You may not have control over who you work with, but if you do, and you can choose to surround yourself with believers, it's a wonderful thing to work alongside other people that have the same beliefs and motivations and morals as you. Conversely, you know what it's like to work for people or with people that have very different morals or motivations than you, and that is hard. You don't always have that control, but if somebody says, hey, we should start a company together, or we should start this side business together, or, or maybe you could come work for me, or I could come work for you, or I know that somebody's hiring, if you have the ability to join yourself up on a level with someone that is a dedicated believer, it is a blessed place to work. Now, we don't always have control about who we work with. <laughs> One of these days, I'm going to work in a place where everybody's a Christian. No, 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 no. <laughs> Pastor Steve is a far better Christian than I am, and it's a blessing to work with him. And we don't always have that control, but that is, if you're going to become partners with somebody in something, make sure they're a believer. Because you're going to, uh, Jim, you had a business, didn't you? You became a believer, didn't you, while you owned that business? What was your partner like? Worldly. Did it cause some trouble? It did cause some trouble. I'm not just making this up. It caused some trouble. Now, you can't always control that, but if you do have the ability, it's a blessing to do it. Now, when we look for romantic partners, we should be looking for people that are serious about the Lord. Now, I want you to know, not everybody is meant to get married. Some people have the gift of singleness. One of the most godly ladies I have ever met is named Polly Daringer. She serves faithfully uh, on staff at Crown College and down at the church in Knoxville, Tennessee. She is wonderful. She has like 25 Burmese adopted children that she works with their families and takes them to school and gets them scholarships to private school. I mean, she, she's doing a fantastic work for the Lord, and she's been given the gift of singleness. You say, is that a nice way for saying she's ugly? <laughs> no, no, she's not. There, there's nothing untoward or unusual about her, right? Because you're like, oh, the gift of singleness, that's a unibrow. No, she doesn't have that. She's pleasant to be around, good personality, but God just hasn't led her in that direction, hasn't really brought anybody to her, and every time she's pursued something, it hasn't gone anywhere, and who knows, maybe she will get married later on in life. Some people, God has given the gift of singleness. Some of you right now are wishing that you were given that, that takes me back to wanting the wife you don't have than having the wife you don't want. Hopefully that's not anybody here. You say, I don't know anybody that's my age and that is a committed believer, and I don't even know what to do. Then wait. Wait. It's not time yet. It is not time yet. God has something for you. If he's put the desire in your heart to be with someone, he has something for you. And you rushing ahead 
you rushing ahead is not going to make things better. It's going to make it worse. I don't know the mind of God. I really don't. I don't know the mind of God. But there's one thing that I highly suspect. I was resistant to all of the times that I heard the gospel message. I don't need that. You're brainwashed. That's a crutch. I don't need anything like that in my life. I'm fine without God. That was my mindset for a long time. Do you know when finally the Lord broke through? Is when Shannon obeyed the Lord and dumped me. When Shannon chose God over me, the Lord convicted me and showed me that I was a sinner. Oh, I knew all of that stuff. I don't even think after we broke up, I even went to church one time between then and when I became a believer. But those seeds were already sown, and her obedience in choosing to please the Lord over choosing to please herself, I believe God took that and he blessed that. And that's when I was pressured, shall we say, by the Spirit of God and shown my need for Christ, and I chose to receive him. And we could start a new relationship on the right foundation, headed in the right direction. Work while you're waiting, if you are waiting, work on becoming the kind of person that is worthy of having that Christ-honoring relationship. Don't just try and find somebody else. Work on who God has made you to be. And you will find yourself, as you follow the Lord day by day, in the right place at the right time. The last thing is to do not date unbelievers. Do not date unbelievers. You say, why not? Why not? I get it. I was the unbeliever. <laughs> and people didn't think Shannon should be dating me. And I didn't like them. Because I thought I was a pretty good person. And I wasn't going to do anything terrible to her. But let me ask a different question. How do believers, saved people, end up marrying unsaved people? This is going to blow your mind. How do saved people end up marrying unsaved people? How do people end up in a marriage where they're headed in one direction and their spouse is heading in the other direction? How do they end up with a divided house about how we're going to raise the kids and how we're going to spend our money and how we're going to spend it? How, how do you end up there? How do you end up marrying somebody that is not a believer? You ready? You date them first. Whoa, you went to college for this? <laughs> yep. You date them first. And you say, well, we're not talking about marriage. We're just hanging out and we're spending time together. I know. But little by little, you're giving them your heart. Little by little, you're giving them your heart. And here's what's going to happen. One day, you're going to be forced to choose between your God and them. That is an ugly place to be. That is a heartbreaking place to be. And some people, they make the choice to trust the Lord and to take him over them, but it feels like they've been gutted afterwards because they've had to walk away from somebody that they love because they gave their heart to them, little by little, as they spent time together. Or they'll say things like, well, they don't need, our love is so strong, they don't need to be a believer. They're, we're going in the same direction. It's not that different between me and them. They love me, they care for me. I can tell you, I have seen so much heartbreak at the end of that road that I have seen with my own eyes people who are like, well, I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. And what are they going to do with their children in the end? Do you want your children to be with you in heaven? Do you want them to know Christ as Savior, to know the blessings in this life and eternal life in the world to come? How hard is that going to be 
with somebody that doesn't believe is the other person that's their parent. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. And I think that if you find yourself in that place today where you are married to somebody that is not a believer, and maybe you chose to marry them knowing that they weren't a believer, but you got married anyway, that you would, if you had a chance, and you wouldn't, I wouldn't ask anybody to say anything or embarrass anybody or ask you to raise your hand and being like, yep, she's terrible, or something like that. No, but there's probably been heartache in your life that you didn't have to have. And there's probably been ungodly thoughts given to your children that have created com uh, almost competition at home for what to believe, what not to believe. And that they would tell you, don't, don't walk this road. Don't walk this road. Stop when it's easier. Stop when it's easier. Wait for God to bring you the right one. I go back to saying, does that mean we can't be friendly with people that don't believe the same thing as we believe? No. Should we be mean to them? No. Should we, should we treat all of them poorly? Absolutely not. Think about how Jesus behaved with people that didn't believe. He was given all sorts of garbage by the religious crowd because he spent time with publicans and sinners. He was good to them. He answered their questions. He went over to their homes. He even performed miracles for some of them. Jesus was a friend of sinners. Praise God he was, because all of us are sinners. Some of us are saved by grace, and some of us have yet to be saved. But all of us are sinners in need of a Savior that is approachable by sinners, that is a friend. So we, we look at the Lord Jesus' behavior, and he was never acted as though he was better. Do you remember the woman who was caught in the act of adultery? And Jesus stepped in and spared her life when she was about to be stoned by an angry crowd. Do you remember the woman at the well? who was on her sixth man, five failed marriages, shacked up with the sixth one, and instead of being mean to her, he spoke with her, led her to faith in Christ, and her life was miraculously changed. Do you remember all the times that Jesus would go to the, the lepers that were the outcasts of society, and when no one wanted to touch them, he would touch them and heal them? So I'm not saying that there should be one ounce of anything nasty between us. But let's remember the direction we're headed in. Let's remember what God has called us to. When he says, be ye separate, he says, be appointed. Understand the high calling of the Lord Jesus Christ and what you've been saved to become. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes for just a moment this morning? I want to thank you for your good attention today, and I know we went a little bit long. In our church, we have what we call a time of invitation where we invite you to act on what it is that the Lord is speaking to you about. And I don't know what it is that God is speaking to you about. But if you're here today, and perhaps you say to yourself, I've been looking in all sorts of earthly relationships... Maybe it's in work relationships, maybe it's friendships, maybe it's with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or, or someone that you're engaged to. You say, I've been looking, or even married couples. And I've been putting all of what I think would satisfy me, my demands, on this person, and they're not living up to it. They're not meeting my needs. But God has shown you today, maybe they're not the ones who are supposed to meet that need. Maybe that's something that's only going to be found in the Lord himself. That's a weight that no person was ever meant to carry. It's too much. Only God can fill that spot in your life. If that's you today, 
and you say, I need to find what I'm missing, not in a change of circumstance, not in a different job or a different wife or husband or a different house or a different car or a different financial statement. No, you say, I need to find that in the Lord this morning, nowhere else but the Lord. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around, would you mind just slipping your hands up and right back down saying, that's me, I just want to pray for you. Amen, amen. I can't look into this relationship horizontally anymore. I need to look to the Lord for this thing. Anybody else like that? I just want to pray for you. Would you slip your hand up? You can put it right back down when you do. Amen. Amen. Perhaps you're here today and you are a believer, but you find yourself drawn to or in a relationship with somebody who's not a believer. Maybe it's a deep friendship. Maybe it's a close friendship. Maybe it's a business arrangement that you put yourself in and now you're tied to somebody who's headed in a different direction. Maybe it is a romantic relationship and you've given your heart away to somebody. And you said, Lord, I'm in a place where I don't want to be. I feel torn. I feel torn. Lord, help me. Help me. Have mercy on me. Would there be anybody like that this morning that's just saying, Lord, help me with this. This relationship, this friends, friendship, uh, business relationship, this romantic relationship, it's... It's not what it ought to be, Lord. Give me strength to do the right thing. Can you just slip your hand up and write back down? Is there anybody like that today? Perhaps you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as Savior. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you might be watching or listening online. Today, you can trust Christ. You can know Him. In just a moment, we're going to stand and sing and some people will come and pray and others will be praying right there in their seat. I want you to know that you can slip out of your seat and come meet me here at the head of the aisle. I'll be down here and you can come and say, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved, but I would like to know. I'm ready to trust Christ. Or I have questions. Could somebody help me? And someone will take you aside privately, a gentleman with a gentleman, a lady with a lady. And you can get that settled. You can get that settled today. If God is drawing you to himself, if he's spoken to you, would you say yes to him this morning? Maybe it's not about anything I even said, but there's something heavy on your heart and you want to bring it before the Lord. Whatever it is, may we say yes to him today. Father, in this time of invitation, be glorified as to how your children obey you and respond to you in their hearts. Uncomfortable but clear words, Lord. Help us to obey them in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.